Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Maybe you've heard this phrase, youth is wasted on the young. And uh, as, a, as a young man, which depending on who you ask, I'm still a young man, but I mean, as a younger man, um, I used to not like that phrase because I thought that's baloney. I'm not wasting it. I'm, <laughs> I'm taking advantage of it. This is not, but as I get older, you start to recognize, um, you know, it, just even in the practical things in life, you're not as flexible as you used to be. You, you can't do things that you used to could. <laughs> you can maybe not be, uh, uh, you can't go uh, as long laboring in a certain field. You've got to take, you know, more breaks. And these are the things you start to appreciate as you get older. But um, the encouragement of today's section is simply this. There's a, there's a, a, a youth component to this. There's a, a direct challenge to young people, young at heart even, but, but younger people who have lots of life left. And the encouragement is simply this. Enjoy what you have, but remember it goes quickly. And the idea behind that statement is to, so that you as a young person would value the life that God has given you, the, the, the fact that you have more days ahead of you than you do behind you, and that there are choices that you make today, that there's no, there's no wasted day or wasted moment. And, and oftentimes we, we view life that way as young people. Oh, it doesn't matter. I'll just, this day is a throwaway day. But as you get older, you, you recognize the value of each moment, each day, each week, each month. It starts to sink in how valuable life is. And the, and the whole goal of this section today, I think, is to challenge young people to say, let's prioritize these things. Let's prioritize what's important. Uh, important. Let's not waste the time that we have. Let's not give away another day that maybe we, we give away, that we just completely give away. And that's going to be the message. That's going to be the, the mantra in, in this morning's sermon from the book of Solomon. And remember, early on in the book of Ecclesiastes, we talked about O-P-E, right? Learning from O-P-E, not Opie Taylor from the Andy Griffith Show, not Opie Cunningham. It's O-P-E, Other People's Experiences, or OPM, other people's mistakes. We we're just talking about this in Sunday school this morning. The tragedy uh, as a parent, one of the, the things that, that hurts your heart more as a parent, and then I'm assuming as a grandparent as well, is when you see your child or your grandchildren making decisions, bad decisions that have consequences that you've made yourself that you've personally experienced the pain and the hurt that it causes, and yet you can't stop them, and they're making the same decision. And you're just like, tear my heart out of my chest. Man, this breaks me. And, and those of you that know what I'm talking about know what I'm talking about. And those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, you will one day. You'll understand this. And this is, I believe, the heart behind Solomon's message this morning other people's mistakes learn from them. Other people's experiences learn from them. You do not have to be the same foolish idiot, speaking to my kids, as your father was. You can actually do better than me. You can actually be more spiritually minded than me. When you're 44, you can be better than your dad was at 44. If you begin to apply these principles now, if you begin to value what God values, you begin to train yourself now and stop throwing away days upon days of your precious life. And that's the message that I believe Solomon is going to drive through here. In fact, he starts with an illustration in verse 7. He says, truly the light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. And, and I believe he's using light as an illustration to refer to the, to the good and the enjoyable times in life. In fact, I think the illustration is probably more of a uh, of speaking of general life, how how life in general is sweet and and pleasant. Now that doesn't mean everything in life that happens is good and sweet and pleasant because we know that's not true. 
but the, the, the point of having life is valuable. We might say something like, it's good to be alive. Life's a gift. And I love, uh, it's good to see Winnin and Rose here this morning. I love what Winnin tells me. How are you doing? He says, well, I'm upright and vertical. And so life is good. What a, what a great attitude. What a, what a great attitude. You know, you, you ask some people, how's life going? And it's like, you almost say, you know, there's some people you dread asking that question to because like 30 minutes later, you're still wondering, like, am I going to get out of here anytime <laughs> today? Like they, they got a list of why life's not good. So the, the point here is he starts verse seven, life's a gift. Life has value. Are you upright and vertical today? Praise God, you got something special that everybody in the graveyard down the street doesn't have. You got a, you got a, a day of life under the sun. And many of us are probably saying, well, maybe I, I'd rather be them because <laughs> it's actually better where I'm going. And I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. But this is still a gift. And I think as we as, as people get older, and I'm not saying you have to be old to realize this. I just think that as we get older, we realize those things more and more. We understand those things more and more. So in verse eight, Solomon, uh, Solomon is really good. Like he's, he's funny because like the guy could party, right? We've read about his life. The guy know how to party, but he also know how to wreck a party. He also knew how to, you know, bring the, the Eeyore uh, mindset into the room. And so he's going to kind of give some, some realism here in this next verse as we read through verse eight. We'll talk about that as we get there. But he says, but if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, and he doesn't stop there. He goes on and brings Eeyore again to the party. Yet let him remember the days of darkness for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Wow. Thanks for raining on that parade. <laughs> Solomon, you know, we're talking about enjoying life. He's like, but even while you're enjoying it, remember this end. And so it's really interesting. Now, Solomon describes a man who, who lives many years on this earth doing so in a joyful way. And that is something that should be praised. That is something we should all strive for. To, to recognize life as a gift from God's hand, to recognize even trials as God's gracious gift to drive us to Jesus Christ, to depend on him more and, and rely upon him in fellowship more. All of these things are, are the mindset of somebody that can live on this earth in a joyous way all of their years. And so how would Solomon describe that? I think in Solomon's words, he would say this, the person that rejoices in all his years is the person who appreciates the gifts of God. We just came out of a section last week that talked about the value of diligence. He says, so I think he would say it's somebody who works diligently as unto the Lord and it's somebody that has learned to trust God's ways and his timing in their life. That's a person who can rejoice in all of their years because that can encompass all sorts of things. Great successes, great failures, tragedies, and, and great excitements in life. All of these things encompassed in this world. How do you rejoice in all the years? Well, I think these are some ways. is having the ability to think biblically, having the ability to think with a divine perspective. And we looked at that in communion. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You have the mind of Christ. You can think biblically about anything that's going on in your life right now as you walk by means of the Spirit. And, and, and that's the key. And that's the thing that oftentimes we, we just get out in front of ourselves, not relying upon the Lord. We, we get out trusting our own evaluation of things. We get out trusting our own timing of how things ought to work. Well, I don't like this. This is moving too slow, so I'm going to speed it up. Or I don't like this. It's moving too quick, so I'm going to slow it down. And we try to control everything instead of at some point saying, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to, I just want to hold on to your hand. But Lord, I may let go, so don't let go of me. You know what? And he just delights to answer that. I mean, he's not going to let go of you. That's the whole point of your Savior. He's not going to let you go. And yet our mindset oftentimes is we get out in front of the Lord. So how do we enjoy the Lord? It's, in many ways, it's just trusting him, learning to trust his ways and his timings, uh, his timing in life. And so in other words, if this man walks in the fear of the Lord his whole life, he lives a long life, everything's going well. Solomon says, still, you need to remember something. Something 
needs to still circulate in your thinking, even if you've learned the quote unquote secret of life, rejoicing in life. What should he remember? Well, he says, let him remember. And this word means to recall information, to recall events with a focus of responding. Okay, not just letting it hear the, hit the ear gate or letting it hit the memory canal in your brain, but the idea of taking that information, processing it, and responding accordingly to this information. This is the idea of this remembrance. And so even though this guy is responding well, living life, Solomon says, I still want you to remember something else. You're doing great in this area, but I want you to remember something else. And so what does he um, want him to remember? And, you know, before we get to that, let me just say one other thing about um, remembering. And one of the things that you'll find oftentimes in the scriptures is there's a high value placed on our ability to remember the truth of God's word. Uh, you'll see that throughout the scriptures. You'll see that in the historical section of scriptures. We were just in Joshua 24 this morning, Joshua's last words. And the first 13 verses of that speech is he's telling the Israelites to remember what God had already done. Now, why is, why is that important? Why is it, re, re, you know, remembering things, especially in this what we're going to look at, remembering or keeping the end in mind, remembering what the end result is going to be. Why would that be important? Because when we can think that way, it tends to impact the decisions that we make in the present. See, if we're only making decisions in the present, we're only thinking and viewing of life, of what's going on in the present, how I feel, what I want, um, how, this, how this hurts me, how I don't want to do this. If that's the only guidepost that we use in making decisions, we're going to make a lot of bad decisions. But if we're remembering things from the past, we're remembering where we're headed. We, we have this understanding that this choice today has consequences tomorrow or even the day after tomorrow, right? That, we, that we're thinking ahead a little bit. We're remembering ahead. It should impact the decisions we make today. It should impact the way we think today. It should impact the way we respond to things today. Because if everyone in this room yelled or screamed at their boss every time their boss has ever made them mad in their life, their resume would look like, you know, the old computer paper that was all like tied together and you just like lifted it up and it looked like an accordion. That's what your resume would look like. Because if you just ripped off at your boss every time you didn't like what they did, guess what would happen? You'd get fired. And see, this is an example of not doing what you feel like doing in that moment because you understand or you remember that there may be an end goal that you don't like, a consequence. And so this is what Solomon's saying, although what he is talking about specifically is the days of darkness. And he says, they will be many, many. And what is he talking about the days of darkness? Well, it's someone's latter years. Verse seven, right? The, the sunshine, the light is sweet. It's beholding. Now he's contrasting to when we die, when it's the latter years of our life. And Solomon, in this sense, is viewing this from a strictly horizontal plane. You know, as believers, we're like, oh yeah, bring on death. I mean, at some level. I mean, we, it's not like we want to go out and, 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 and put ourselves in harm's way. But we're saying, hey, if we die, you know, it, it's gain, right? We, hopefully we have the mindset of the apostle Paul to live as Christ, to die as gain. Solomon's not taking that viewpoint. He's, he's taking a strictly human viewpoint as to the value of life under the sun. And his point is this, um, when you die, you don't get to enjoy the things on this earth anymore. You don't get to enjoy the things that happen on earth that bring you joy. You know, think, snow cones, think cotton candy, you know, think lollipops, think steak dinners, think steak dinners with bacon wrapped around them. I mean, just whatever, like gets you excited. The things that we enjoy in life, all of that is gone in the latter years or when you die. That, that's, those all are gone. That, those enjoyments cannot be had. And that's his point. He says that these dark days after death are said to be many. That's interesting way he says it because he's really implying that the days that you'll spend after death are actually longer than the days you'll spend on this life. Now, doesn't the scripture teach that elsewhere? Yeah. I mean, James 4.14, whereas you do not know 
what will happen tomorrow? For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And so the question becomes, what's more important then? Where you spend eternity, how you spend eternity, or this little drop of vapor that we live on this earth? And see, that type of mindset, that kind of remembering the end should impact the way that we spend our lives. We ought to start thinking in terms of, as I wake up today, what would Jesus Christ have me do today? Ephesians 2.10, what good works does the Father have designed for me to walk in today? You see, that's, that's a way of bringing eternity into view. It, that's a way of enjoying life the way God wants us to enjoy life, fulfilling his purpose, fulfilling his exact meaning for you. You know, each believer individually has got skills and giftings and callings on their life. And you can't be any happier as a believer in Jesus Christ than when you're fulfilling those very things. And yet many times we don't even think that way. We think in terms of our to-do list. We think in terms of tantalizing our senses. We think in terms of what, what, how, do, how can I have fun today? As if fun is the goal of life. It's not the goal of life. You can have fun as you're in fellowship with the Lord, but that's not the goal. It's just a result. It's the enjoyment of the Lord that's the goal. It's living life in light of eternity. That's the goal. So why should man remember that the days of darkness are coming? What's a, a, another way? Well, look at that last phrase. It kind of helps us understand it in verse eight. All that is coming is vanity. That's a very encouraging way to end verse eight. But I think Solomon's point is this. If someone thinks this life doesn't make sense, well, how much more the afterlife from a human perspective? You know, again, we're, we're looking at a horizontal plane here, but Solomon is just making a very strictly human argument. He's saying, hey, if this life doesn't make sense, that life's not going to make sense either. So why not focus on what you know, enjoy what you have? And the main point seems to be remember where you're headed so you can truly enjoy and appreciate the life that you have on earth. This is a gift. You know, we can acknowledge these things very intellectually. We say this all the time, oh, life goes by so quickly. Where did 2020 go? I mean, we've all probably said that this year. It seems like, you know, 2020 seems in some ways like it's flown by and in some ways it's like gone on forever. <laughs> like, I don't know how time does that sometimes, but that's what this year's felt like. But this is the point as we kind of begin to transition here um, into youth, you know, youth goes and comes by very quickly. That's, that's what young people don't understand for the most part. They can understand it intellectually. I think maybe we all understood it intellectually, but as you get older, you, you understand it in a deeper way that, that youth oftentimes is wasted on the young, the things that, uh, that they don't, just don't understand. There's no do-over. It, it goes so rapidly that there's not a do-over in that sense. Now, as we get to... Um, as we get to the, the next slide, let me just, uh, I'm going to skip over this. As we get to the next slide, what we're going to see, it's interesting because we get to verses 9 and 10, and Solomon is going to jam verses 9 and 10 with six commands for young people, six commands. And so he's really trying to instruct here. He's really trying to give advice here. And so he's going to give six commands here starting in verse 9. And the first thing He's going to say, uh, let's read verse 9, and then we'll kind of break it down. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And so Solomon has got a, he's got a little bit of encouragement here, but with a dose of reality. Okay, we're going to see that, that kind of balance as we go through here. And the first command, he's going to tell them, uh, young man, rejoice in your youth. And the, and the word rejoice just means to be glad, okay? Delight in, uh, be elated, have a feeling, an attitude of joy and happiness. You know, God gets this bad reputation that he's just trying to rob young people of all the fun in life. You know, he, he, just, oh, he just doesn't want you to have any fun. He's, you know, you got to, you know, basically wear a tie, walk straight, you know, don't move, you know, too quickly or out of line. And, and it's got this idea that he's just trying to rob joy from you. 
God wants you to enjoy this life. God wants you to enjoy the things that you have in this life. God wants you to enjoy your family. God wants you to enjoy things in this life while you have this life. And this is uh, proof right here. Solomon commands that, right? These are gifts from God. We've seen in other places in Ecclesiastes, these are gifts. So enjoy them from the hand of God. But that's always the key, right? Enjoy them as you're relying upon the Lord. Don't enjoy them or try to enjoy them independent from the Lord. They've got to go together for entire fulfillment. So the young man is to have this response and reaction regarding their own youth. And, you know, when you think about young people, this is a time of life that they're able to experience uh, life with fresh eyes. Everything's new. I mean, those of you that are older, like me, I'm having a problem here with my clip for some reason this morning, so forgive me if that's distracting you. Um, Those of you that are older like me, you can remember the first time you did blank, right? First time you rode a roller coaster. Remember Remember that feeling, the first time you felt that feeling? Some of you have never been on a roller coaster since because you remember that feeling. Some of you were like, man, let's do it again. And I remember even going to those places with my dad. My mom wouldn't ride the roller coaster. She had the opposite experience. And my dad and I would, and my brother would spend the entire day running from the end of the roller coaster line to the beginning and just doing it all day long. And then every year we'd be like, how many times did we ride it this year? I think we rode it 14 times today. All right, we're going to go for 15 next year. And we had some really cool roller coasters where we were growing up at the time. Like one of the roller coasters was the number one wooden roller coaster in the world. Now, I don't know how they rate that, if it's speed, if it's drop, but we got, we rode that thing 15 times. But I remember the first time my stomach dropped out on a roller coaster. I remember the first time I, I fell in love. I remember that. I remember what it felt like. You, everything is fresh in your eyes when you're young. It, it, our first love, our, our marriage, uh, our first child. Remember your, I mean, those of you that have children, remember your first child, what that felt like? Remember your wedding day, what that felt like? Lots of emotions there, you know, some good and some probably related to stress as well. Remember what your first job felt like? I remember driving up to my first job, dressed up, like ready to roll. My first, like, professional job. I mean, I had a bunch of minimum wage stuff, but my first professional job out of college, pulling into the parking lot, and it's like, whoa, I'm the adult now. This is scary. You know, this is frightening. So I was pulling up to teach high school math. Our first job, remember your dreams. Remember when you, you dreamed big, you had this plan for your life. You were gonna accomplish this, invent this. You, you had your creative juices were flowing. Yeah, right, all of these things. You remember how that feels. That is just the blessing of youth. And he's saying, rejoice in those. Enjoy those. In some ways, we might even say, don't let an old fuddy-duddy bring you back down to earth yet. Like, just enjoy those things. Enjoy the freshness of those things. That's one of the things I love taking uh, guys to Liberia with me. You know, Liberia, West Africa, I go to twice a year. I love taking new guys with me because I love experiencing Liberia through their eyes for the first time. It's fun. It takes me back. It, it makes me feel, not that I've been there. I mean, I've only, I guess, I don't know how many times, 10 or 11 times, but, it, but still, it's fun to see it through fresh eyes. And I believe this is what he's saying. Just rejoice in the days of your youth. Rejoice and joy. All of those things, they're exciting. They're exciting things. He goes on to say in the next command, let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. And the word cheer means to make successful. It means to make prosperous. It means to have, a fa- have favorable circumstances and lack of trouble in life. It can also mean to do good. It can mean to do right. It can mean to have a positive, uh, to, to uh, I guess, affect positive moral actions. And the idea is, is understand that internally, let your heart be your cheerleader. That's kind of the idea cheer you on to do the right things, to make the right decisions. And the idea communicated is expressed like a wish. Let your, let your inner man be fully supportive of you and do right by you. And, you know, one of the things that we, when we talk about um, 
and this is for old people too, right? Everybody in the spectrum, but he's dealing specifically with young people here. There, there is something that we as, as believers don't often realize, and that's this. Your attitudes matter. Your, your thinking matters. Your motives matter. The, taking care, there's, a, there's an old phrase um, used, I think, in Puritan times, and they would, they would walk up to each other, and instead of saying, how do you do, they would say, how goes your soul? Something like that. How goes your soul? Lord, how are you doing internally? Yeah, I see you're leading this ministry at the church. I see that you're active in this. I see all of these things, but how is your soul doing? That's a million-dollar question. That's a million-dollar question. How's your attitude this morning? How are your motives this morning? How is your thought life this morning? Where are you at this morning as it relates to your soul? Do you have an inner cheerleader guiding you, so to speak, in those paths, making you realize that that's valuable? See, for for many believers, uh, if we're being honest with ourselves, we're not convinced of that. You know, as long as I behave externally, I'm good. And we don't even care what's going on internally. We don't even notice what's going on internally. In fact, our internal stuff could be a total trash heap. And if our externals don't reveal that, we are patting ourselves on the back many times. What a hypocrite. And I've got all my fingers pointing back at me. But maybe you can relate. Maybe you can understand what I'm saying. I mean, how many times a day do you even think about what's going on internally in your thinking? How many times a day are you just proud because you don't drink, cuss, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do? Oh, man, I'm, I'm really spiritual because I don't do all these things. Oh, I'm way more spiritual than that guy over there. And we start comparing ourselves. What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your mind? What's going on in your motives? I mean, these are the things that we don't take great care. And you know what? Old people need this truth, but, but young people need this truth. Because here's the deal with young people. Whether they realize it or not, whether any of us realized it or not when we were young, you are training yourself. You are disciplining yourself. You are training yourself. You are going to develop patterns of, of habits that, are gonna, uh, that, that you'll slide in. And the more you present yourself to sin, and the more you present yourself to sin, and the more you present yourself to sin, sin will dominate you. And life doesn't go up from that point. It goes down. So you know what? You can be a, a person whose peak of your life is when you were 18 years old, senior in high school, Mr. Popularity, captain of the football team. But if you're training yourself to think unbiblically and to present yourself to sin, to tantalize your senses, your life will go this direction, guaranteed. Because that's what the word of God teaches. And I don't care how much money you have in the bank. I don't care how big your house is. I don't care how many cars you have. You will be miserable, and there'll be at times in your life you will cry yourself to sleep because you're so miserable. That's the truth of the Word of God. And you know what? God cares enough to tell you it straight up. God cares enough, young people, to tell you that straight up. Now, you have a choice. You can choose to do exactly what you've been doing, or you can choose to walk with the Lord. That's your decision. But you cannot choose your consequences. And that's the scary thing about training yourself in a way that promotes carnality. In fact, we're going to get to that in this next phrase. The third command, he, he says, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. And the, the word walk is our command there. That means to go about or to travel. And um, he's given a command here, but it's given with a tinge of irony or sarcasm. And, and in a sense, he's really saying, don't do this. That's what he's saying here. In fact, if someone does this, you're going to see the consequences in the very next phrase. God is going to judge them. His judgment will ensue. So Solomon's not saying, oh yeah, go party it up. Don't, don't worry about it. It's, enjoy the youth. You know, there's entire religions. I think the Amish religion, they call it, you know, sowing your wild oats. Like, hey dude, go sow your wild oats and then come back and then you'll be a godly man. I'm like, what? How does that work out? Go sow your wild oats and then come back and marry my daughter? Uh, I don't think so. 
I don't think that's going to happen, right? So he's not saying that there. The the idea here is that he's saying, you know what? If you want to go fulfill all of your impulses, if you want to walk in the ways of your heart and fulfill all the desires of your heart, um, then then go for it. But there are going to be consequences. That's it's that's kind of his advice. It's kind of a backwards way of giving advice. It's presenting the wrong way, saying, yeah, you can do that, but here's what you're going to face if you do that. In fact, we hear this a lot in our day. This is what our celebrities say. This is what our politicians say. This is what anybody who's ever on TV says, media people. They always say what? You hear it like, I mean, it's, I hear it so much, I just want to puke. <laughs> follow your heart, right? Do we hear that a lot? Oh, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. That's kind of what Solomon's saying here, but he's, he doesn't mean it that way. He's, he's actually saying that's a bad thing. So t- typically when you hear someone say, follow your heart, you should probably like run away from that person. That's really bad advice. You're not following your heart. You're, the, the, the question, if you're gonna ask the question about your heart is does your heart line up with the word of God? If so, let it be your inner cheerleader. If not, adjust your standard quickly. Adjust your thinking quickly. Because one thing we also learn about our heart is the Bible says it's deceitful and desperately wicked. And that's not just talking about the guy that's drunk in the gutter. That's talking about all of us. There's, there's something involved in the way sin can warp our thinking. So much so that we even deceive ourselves. That's what's frightening about it. So following your heart, just doing what you feel is probably not a good philosophy. It's, I'm being nice. It's not a good philosophy. It's not probably not. It is not a good philosophy for life. Walk in the side of your eyes, again, has the idea of pursuing everything that you see. Whatever you see, whatever you want to pursue, just go for it. In fact, it should remind us of one of Solomon's dead-end streets back in chapter 2, where this is exactly what he did with his life, and he tells us it's a dead-end street. Young people, don't go down there. Learn from my mistakes. Learn from my experiences. That's not where life is at. Again, whatever you see, whatever you desire, just go get it. And we're going to see uh, in verse 9 this fifth com- fourth command And we're going to see that choices have consequences. He says it this way, but know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. And he's telling the young people, know this, understand this, learn this. This is true of life. There are consequences for choices. And so even though there are many positive things to enjoy and rejoice about in someone's youth, the problem is many unwise and immoral youth engage in things that are sinful and wrong. And those are going to come with consequences. And this is Solomon's point. And see, here's the problem for young people. It, it, we, when you're young, you are at a peak time in your life. Peak time. Lots of opportunities available to you. You know, I think the worst thing that you can do to a young kid, and we used to do this sometimes to our kids, not to punish them, but it just, it was something I learned after doing it. Bring them into a candy store and tell them they can get one thing. If you want to lose two to three hours of your life while they're deciding on one thing in a candy store, then that's what you can do. You got two to three hours you need to kill somewhere, find a candy store, take a kid in there and tell them they can get one thing or a toy store, uh, insert the store because they get distracted. They cannot, it's hard to make the decision. There's too many options almost. And you know, life is that way when you're young. You know, one of the things that I, uh, dreaded, but it, it was a little bit easier for me when I was 18 because I kind of knew what I was going to do. But it, it's to ask an 18 year old, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to major in? That's like, oh man, it's like these 18 year olds, poor people. I mean, they, they, you couldn't even look at a college catalog and, and it would be overwhelming if you didn't really know, right? So there's so many distractions, so many things out there. And there's so many opportunities to pursue things that have no eternal value that look good on the surface, that, that distract from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know, distraction is possible in the youth because they lack experience. And that's not, I'm not speaking down to youth. I mean, you can only, I mean, 
You're 14 years old, you're 15 years old, you're 20 years old. You, ha- you only have the experience that you have, right? Just like at 44, I only have, well, I'm rounding up. I guess I turn 44 next month. But, I, but you only have the experience that you have. You, that just is what it is. But they, they lack experience. They lack perspective. They don't have a long-term understanding. Oftentimes when you're, when you're older, you can see what a decision you made at 16, how it's still impacting your life negatively. See, 16-year-olds don't have that perspective. They just, they can't. They don't have that perspective on life. So it's very easy to get distracted. They, they lack knowledge. They lack wisdom. They don't even have the knowledge that they need to apply it, which is wisdom oftentimes. So there, there's a lot of distractions. It's like play, trying to play cards with a half a deck. I mean, you can kind of do something that looks like cards, but it's, you know, you can't do it. You're, you're, you're missing some pieces. And so again, it's not that they're stupid, Although, you know, sometimes you, you may feel that way as a, as a parent, that they're lacking, you know, intellectual capacity. They're not. It's just that they don't have this experience. There's lots of different ways to get distracted. And so this is what Solomon is saying. When you just pursue what your heart wants, what, you're, what you see, you're tantalizing your senses, understand that there's going to be judgment on the other side of that. And hopefully that's enough to flip the switch and a young person to say, I don't know what I don't know, but I do know I want to walk with the Lord, period. And they're still going to make mistakes along the way, but at least they're convinced of the path. Young men, young people in general, having fun, sensing they have a lease on life, they're going to face God's judgment regardless um, for, for their decision makers. Now, uh, we've got to split that concept of judgment apart for a second because we're, we want to talk about unbelievers and we want to talk about believers. Because the judgments aren't the same, but there's judgment either way. Now, for unbelievers, that judgment will culminate in the appearance before God the Father and God the Son at the great white throne judgment. That's after the millennial kingdom period where they will be found guilty of not having the necessary righteousness to enter into heaven. That will be the ultimate and final judgment. You know, this person may have really lived it up in their youth. They may have pursued lots of things that they saw and desire. And yet the one thing that they never took seriously was their need for righteousness. They never took seriously that one day they would face God in judgment. And you know, this is what's really interesting about this whole concept is when you look at Jesus's words in John 16, he says that the spirit of God is gonna convict the world of three things. Remember what those three things are? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And see, this is what many people never put together on this earth, that God requires a righteousness equal to his righteousness to get to heaven. And that's why you've got people running all over the world, every religion, every, every quote-unquote spiritual person, and they think that there's a certain standard of goodness that will get you into heaven, and they've missed the whole point. Because no amount of human goodness can ever produce a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. In fact, we look at it from that perspective, nobody deserves to go to heaven. And you know what? That's biblical. It sounds negative, but it's biblical. And that's why we're saved by grace. God is free to give us something we don't deserve or earn. Because Jesus, the righteous one, died in the place of the unrighteous ones, you and I, so that we could have his righteousness. And that's how you get a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. Not because you tried for it, because you trusted in the one who died for you and was righteous. That's how you get it. And see, unbelievers aren't going to recognize that. They're not even thinking about that. In fact, many people, the way they handle God's judgment and their thinking, unbelievers, they just put their head in the sand, right? Oh, I don't think it's going to be there. Oh, I believe in a loving God. Well, so do I. But he doesn't have one character quality. He's also a just God. He's got to punish lawbreakers. And we understand the concept of justice. When somebody has wronged us, that's the first thing we want to see. We want to see justice on that person. That's a natural, built-in desire for humanity. And yet God, the creator of humans, created in his image, is also a just God, and he will punish sin. And so for the unbeliever, it's not very good news if they have to face God on judgment day, clothed in their own righteousness. In fact, we learn from Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So imagine showing up to court, Great white throne judgment. I got a great case. 
Let me pull out all my evidence. And you reach behind you and you go to pull out all your good work evidence and it's, you're laying filthy rags before a holy God. And it's at, that, it's at that moment for many people, they're gonna recognize, oh man, I missed the boat. I missed the message. And so he's saying choices have consequences. Now for the believer, the judgment's not the great white throne judgment. The judgment is gonna be at the judgment seat of Christ. And the difference there is Jesus Christ is not judging your sins that you committed as a believer. He is evaluating your good works. That's what that judgment is all about. And we've taught, I've taught on that a number of times from the pulpit and on Sunday nights, but it, it's not you showing up in a room with everyone watching and God putting on the big screen all the times that you failed and sinned in the Christian life. And you're over there going, oh man, I wish you would turn this off. That's not the judgment seat of Christ at all. He's evaluating your good works. And here's what we've got to understand. Why is this judgment going to be important to even carnal believers at the time? Because this person, this carnal believer, somebody who's saved but not living for the Lord, they may have also lived it up in their youth. They may have also pursued lots of things that they just saw and their heart desired, and they just pursued life that way. And as a result, they did not spend any time walking by means of the Spirit. They didn't clock any time in the Spirit. They didn't, they didn't uh, clock any time being controlled by the Spirit of God. And you know, as a result of that, everything they did in that period of their lives was eternally useless, unrewardable. And you say, well, I, I mowed the lawn for my neighbor. Yeah, but you weren't in fellowship with the Lord. It, it's, all, it's not gonna be just good works. Everything that's evaluated that day is a good work. Now God's gonna evaluate, is it acceptable to him? And if it's acceptable to him as you're walking with right motives, with right attitudes, and you're living from the source of the spirit of God, those are gonna be the acceptable good works. They're all good works. <laughs> it's not, you know, if I'm, if I'm you know, taking somebody a meal and I'm kicking and screaming the dog on my way up there and I slam the car door and I'm gritting my teeth and I show up to the front door and I'm like, hi, how's it going? Here's a meal. And I go back and I, and I slap my wife on the leg on the way out. I mean, Seriously? That, it's a good work. I mean, the person is, is going to enjoy the food, but that's rewardable. No, that's not going to be rewardable. I'm not living from the source of the Spirit of God. My motives are messed up. I'm trying to look good for somebody else. Those aren't going to be acceptable. And so there's going to be judgment that kicks in, even for a carnal youth. And so the next command we find in verse 10, as we kind of close out this morning, he says, therefore, remove sorrow from your heart. Put away evil from your flesh for childhood and youth are vanity. And notice he uses the word therefore. He's building on the fact that God will bring each one of us into judgment. And remove means to take away. And just remove this idea of sorrow from your heart. Now, I don't believe he's just saying, hey, just, hey, just stop feeling sorrowful. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. In fact, I think it ties in really well with the last verse that we just looked at, this last concept. How do you remove sorrow or grief or anxiety from your heart? By not walking in the ways of your heart and not pursuing the things that your eyes see, not taking that pathway of life. That's the whole point. And here's the thing you can rest assured of. We say this often, but it's probably good to say again. Sin produces. Sin is a production factory. And it always produces one product. That's got, it's multifaceted. It looks, it looks different in a lot of different ways. But understand this, sin produces death. Sin produces death. That can look like destruction. It can look like misery. It can look like anxiety. It can look like sorrow as we're looking at it right here. And here's the thing. This is the tricky thing about sin because maybe it doesn't show up right away. In fact, we learn in Hebrews, it talks about Moses avoiding uh, the, the pleasures of sin for a season in Egypt. And so that means what? Sin is fun for a little bit. Sin can be fun for a little bit. There's, there's pleasure in sin for a little bit. Let's not lie about that. Let's not say there's not. There is. But the point is this, the piper always shows up. You're going to be left holding, with, holding the bag the piper shows up eventually. Sin produces death. That's what happens. That's what happens. And so even for a carnal believer, 
And, and that's why like even Romans 6.23, we use it for salvation. That's a secondary application. But Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, is in the middle of a sanctification passage. It's talking about believers living carnally and experiencing death. Now, obviously, they're not experiencing eternal death. They're not experiencing, I mean, they could experience physical death, but it's specifically thinking of death-like existence, destruction, misery, sorrow, these kind of things. And that will happen when a believer lives carnally. But by actually living in the fear of the Lord, rather than living to tantalize your senses, um, you can actually remove sorrow from your heart. It's kind of preventative maintenance, if you want to say it that way. And then finally, that last command in verse 10, he says this, put away evil from your flesh. And the, the phrase put away is our command. It means to, to lead away or to send. It means to send away evilness uh, or wickedness away from your body. Uh, again, based on the fact that young persons will face judgment uh, one day, they're not to engage in evil or wickedness, just to, to tantalize their own pleasure. Again, how does one do that? Well, the unbeliever has no chance. The unbeliever is living from the source of sin. Everything they do is evil, even their good works. That's, they've got no chance. They need the message of the gospel. They need to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they need to do, not improve their life or stop drinking. You know, oftentimes people that that even proceed and become more moral. They've, maybe they're uh, an unbeliever that's lived a licentious lifestyle. Oftentimes they'll start digging themselves out of a licentious lifestyle and they make themselves two times the child of hell than they were before. Because now they're proud of their sobriety. Now they're proud of this, they're proud of that. And now they actually think they've got some goodness to get them into heaven and they actually un- don't understand the gospel more. I don't need a savior, I'm good enough. I, I, I quit drugs, I'm good. I'm good. If God's, remember, I had a, uh, an, a former drug addict tell me, if God's not going to accept me on the basis of the fact that I quit drugs, then I don't want to go to heaven anyways. I'm like, man, that's tragic. And I told him, I wish you were still on drugs because you might actually appreciate the gospel. You might actually appreciate the truth of the word of God that you need a savior. I don't wish they were on drugs, but I'm just saying mentally, you know, they were in a better spot to realize they needed help when they couldn't help themselves. The second they thought they could help themselves, they have no use for Jesus Christ, none. And see, unbelievers don't understand that. Now, the believer does have a chance. The believer has a chance to put away evil deeds from their life. It's part of your salvation package. And we talk about this, our salvation, our one salvation in three tenses, being saved from the penalty of sin when Christ died for you and you put your faith in the finished work of Christ. It's called justification. The Bible calls that justification. But you've also been saved. You are being saved from the power of sin. And the way God accomplished that is you died with Jesus Christ and he did that to free you from sin's power. And that's an ongoing salvation as you repeatedly respond by faith, trusting the Lord to free you from sin's power. He wants to do that for you. But you've got to participate by faith. You've got to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive unto God. You've got to, by faith, present your members to the Lord as those alive from the dead. That's where that salvation is experienced in our daily life. And then future salvation when we're completely saved from the very presence of sin. And that also happened when Jesus died for you and you put your faith in him. That three tenses of salvation, it's all there for us as a believer. You know, one more reason to remove sorrow is going to be this last um, concept here that he says, for childhood and youth are vanity. They're fleeting. They're fleeting. It's, in other words, it's not worth indulging everything that you see and your, your heart desires. It's worth living for Jesus Christ is, is kind of the idea. There's no reason to pursue, pursue these things in childhood and youth. You can't even, you can't even get lasting meaning or substance out of these things. And this is Solomon's point. These pre- pleasures will prove elusive. Their results will not be long-lasting. Let me, let me just close with a concluding illustration. Those of you um, that have never owned a gun, this won't, I mean, not that I have, but the concept you'll understand. You know, when you, when you aim a gun, and they'll tell you this a lot, if, if your aim is off just a, just a millimeter, when you hit the target, is, is it off the bullseye just a millimeter or is it off a little bit more? It's off more, okay? That's, that's the concept here. And so 
the, the trajectory of the bullet is always more extreme at the barrel of the gun, at the source of the gun. And this is the point with young people. You have a bigger opportunity. You have more distance in front of you than when you're older. And so your trajectory is so important to keep right on because the the little compromises you make, the little compromises you make, the little compromises you make, when it goes out into your life in the future, it's, you're not going to just miss the bullseye by this much. It's going to be a lot bigger. And I don't say that to scare you. You, you know, young people are going to make mistakes. Amen, old people? I mean, that's, that's the truth. Old people make mistakes. Amen, old people? We, we do. We make mistakes. So it's not to put the pressure on the young people. It's to say, guys, wake up. Value what's important. Value the gift of your life and value the fact that you can make a difference. You can, you can contribute something to what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing on this earth when we wake up and recognize that that trajectory is so important. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I, I, I turn my attention to the young people in this room and I, I pray specifically for them. Some were paying attention this morning, Lord, and some weren't. You know who they are and who they were, and that's between them and you. Lord, we just pray for them, and it doesn't matter if they were listening to me this morning, per se. We, we just want them to listen to your word. We just want to be convinced by your word that these things are true and that they wouldn't waste their lives. They wouldn't just throw them down the drain, that they would actually value what you value Lord, we, we pray with, from our hearts for that. That's what we want to see. We don't want to see these young people just waste their lives. We don't want to see them suffer in misery for, for choices that they didn't have to make. Lord, so we, we know you care about them even way more than we do, but Lord, we just, we ask that you would work. Lord, we, we ask that you would never stop working, that you would do what you do. You are, as one commentator wrote years ago, you are the faithful hound of heaven. Search and find them, Lord. Be the shepherd that you are, and don't allow them to slip away from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.